18 to the end of the chapter. Let me just... uh... So we're thinking this morning about uh, what is wrong with the world. So as I say, it's uh, it's not a a cheery subject, but it's an important subject. And uh, before I I read the passage, I'm just going to read from the foreword of... of, uh, of this book by a guy called Carl Truman, The Rise and Triumph of the Modern Self. And uh, in the book, which I have to confess, I haven't yet read, but um, (laughs) because it's on my my to-do list, it was recommended to me, but uh, basically what he does is he charts from how culture has changed over the last 200 years so we've arrived at where we have. So he starts with the Enlightenment and then the... Uh, 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 and then it basically traces how the way we think has changed. And so we've ended up with the society and the culture that we have at the moment that is so godless and desperate. But in the foreword, um, there's a quotation from uh, Alexander Solzhenitsyn, who you may remember was a, uh, a Christian in communist Russia and spent many, many years in, in labour camps and suffering for his faith. And uh, I, was just, I was just sort of flicking through it. And uh, in 1983, Alexander Solzhenitsyn gave uh, the Templeton Prize address. And, uh, and he offered this summary explanation for why all the horrors of Soviet communism came to pass. So this is his summary explanation for why all the horrors of Soviet communism came to pass. This is what he said. Men have forgotten God. That's why all this has happened. Men have forgotten God. That's why all this has happened. And then um, uh, Rod Dreher, who's written the foreword to this book, he goes on. He says, this answer is also a valid explanation for the crises enveloping the West today, including the widespread falling away from faith, the disintegration of the family, a loss of communal purpose, erotomania, erasing the boundaries between male and female, and a general spirit of demonic destruction that denies the sacredness of human life. Because we have forgotten God, we have also forgotten man. That's why all this has happened. So it's a very interesting, um, and as you see when we read Romans 1, there's nothing new under the sun. And, uh, and he says uh, uh, another quote from uh, Alexander Solzhenitsyn in the same uh, Templeton Prize address. He says this, he says, Today's world has reached a state which, if it had been described to preceding centuries, would have called forth the cry, this is the apocalypse. That's how bad things are. And he says, yet we have grown used to this kind of world. We even feel at home in it. We even feel at home in it. So... Let me read Romans 1, 18 to the end of the chapter and you'll see there's nothing new under the sun. The wrath of God is being revealed from heaven against all the godlessness and wickedness of men who suppress the truth by their wickedness since what may be known about God is plain to them because God has made it plain to them. For since the creation of the world, God's invisible qualities, his eternal power and divine nature have been clearly seen being understood from what has been made, so that we are without excuse. For although people knew God, they neither glorified him as God, 
nor gave thanks to him. But their thinking became futile and their foolish hearts were darkened. And although they claimed to be wise, they became fools and exchanged the glory of the immortal God for images made to look like mortal man and birds and animals and reptiles. Therefore, God gave them over in the sinful desires of their hearts to sexual impurity for the degrading of their bodies with one another. They exchanged the truth of God for a lie and worshipped and served created things rather than the creator who is forever praised. Amen. Because of this, God gave them over to shameful lusts. Even their women exchanged natural relations for unnatural ones. In the same way, the men also abandoned natural relations with women and were inflamed with lust for one another. Men committed indecent acts with other men and received in themselves the due penalty for their perversion. Furthermore, since they did not think it worthwhile to retain the knowledge of God, he gave them over to a depraved mind to do what ought not to be done. They have become filled with every kind of wickedness, evil, greed and depravity. They are full of envy, murder, strife, deceit and malice. They are gossips, slanderers, God-haters, insolent, arrogant and boastful. They invent ways of doing evil. They disobey their parents. They are senseless, faithless, heartless, ruthless. Although they know God's righteous decree that those who do such things deserve death, they not only continue to do these very things, but also approve of those who practice them. Paul's conclusion in chapter 3, verse 23 is this. All have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. Let's pray for a moment and then we'll unpack these verses. Father, thank you for your truth and for your revelation. And may our hearts and minds be open and attentive to your word this morning. May we hear your voice, for we ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. So, as I said, uh, this morning we are thinking about the bad news and how bad the bad news is and the state that our world is in. And it is a, it's, a very, it's an uncomfortable descent into the, the depravity of sin. But we have to, um, if you've got the, I didn't read my copy of the book, if you've got the book uh, of... Uh, Romans, um, Andrew Ollerton, the, the picture, he, he describes the whole journey through Romans as a kind of mountain climb. And uh, if you can picture the, the kind of the picture of the mountain, we're, we're in the valley of sin. We're like going into the, the kind of the, into the pit in order to climb the mountain. And uh, as we go up the mountain, we discover the good news of God. And, um, but we're in the valley of sin this morning. So um, as I was preparing this week, uh, I was I was thinking, Lord, I need to be succinct because <laughs> there is so much to cover. I mean, the, there is just there's so much to cover, and I, and I could preach for a lot longer than 44 minutes, but um, I'll be as succinct as I can. And what I want to do is, is just kind of pull out the, the you know the major points that we need to get our heads around. He begins with the wrath. The wrath of God is being revealed from heaven. That's Paul's conviction. The wrath of God is being revealed. What does he mean by the wrath of God? I know I've spoken about this before on previous occasions. This is not 
you know, that point where you, you know, you're really, really stressed and, uh, and then something tips you over the edge and you explode into a kind of foaming at the mouth kind of rage. This is not God's wrath. This is, um, I wrote a little, one of my little stories this week. Some of you may have seen it on Facebook because I went back to Stanmer Park this week and to the, the little cafe where I used to go as a kid and watched in fascination as the, the flies landed on the insecticutor and, uh, and died instantly. And uh, I often have that in my mind. It's a picture of, of, that's kind of a picture of God's wrath, that it's about two natures that are incompatible. God is righteous and in his righteousness, he hates unrighteousness. That's his nature. It's not that, you know, that picture of the insecticutor and a fly. It's not that the insecticutor has anything personal. It's not that he has a personal grudge against the fly. They just, they're incompatible. You cannot put them together. And God's righteousness is like that. It's incompatible with our unrighteousness. And God in his holiness hates unrighteousness because it ruins and it, despo- and it spoils. And God's wrath comes because he loves us. It's part of the outworking of his love that he wants unrighteousness to be rid from his creation. And it's, his wrath is an expression of his love. But it is coming. God's righteous judgment is coming. It is coming on the world and it is coming on each one of us. And the gospel is the way in which we can survive coming into union with his righteousness. It's the way in which we're, 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 you know, we're made... Uh, you know, the, the nature of the fly is changed so that the fly can land on the insecticutor and live. That's what we need to happen to us. But the wrath of God is coming. That is Paul's conviction. That's the revelation of God's word, is the wrath of God is being revealed. Uh, from heaven against all the godlessness and wickedness of men who suppress the truth by their wickedness, since what may be known about God is plain to them, because God has made it plain to them. For since the creation of the world, God's invisible qualities, his eternal power and divine nature have been clearly seen. God loves to reveal himself and make himself known because that's what love does. And when God created the world, he created the world in such a way that, uh, that it would point to himself. I remember the lovely words of the psalmist in Psalm Eight, the psalmist uh, David is looking up to the skies and he says, when I consider your heavens, the work of your fingers, the moon and the stars, which you have set in place, uh, what is man that you are mindful of him, the son of man that you care for him? David, you know, looked up and was in awe of what was created. You know, sometimes we're, we're presented with this idea that, that science and faith are in conflict with one another. Well, we only have the sciences because of people of faith. Because people of faith who believed in a God of order and a God who had, uh, who had laws, they thought, well, if, this, if our world has been created by a God of order and a God of law, then we ought to be able to find those laws evident in creation. So the original scientists were Christians who went looking for God's laws and found them. In the 20th century, the majority of winners of Nobel Prizes for science were Christians or at least theists. Because there's no conflict between the two. God has revealed himself 
in creation. You know, you look at the detail of creation and you think, well, how could that have just happened by chance? It points to a creator. I love um, David Attenborough's favourite insect is the Arctic moth, which has this crazy life cycle of, of you know, a little caterpillar emerging in the spring and a very short summer in the Arctic and has um, four or five months to come to maturity and that's not long enough. So the Arctic, this little caterpillar, stuffs its face for four months, uh, hasn't come to maturity and is then frozen solid. It's an ice cube for eight months. You could put it in your gin and tonic. Uh, and then in the spring it thaws out and spends another four months stuffing its face, still doesn't come to maturity, is frozen solid again, and it takes 11 years. Something like 11 years, I forget the exact number of years. But that's what it does. And eventually, after 11 years of being frozen solid for eight months and stuffing its face for four months, it comes to maturity, goes with you, and emerges as a moth. Lives for about a fortnight and then dies. I mean, literally. <laughs> I mean, how did that just... And you look at things like that and you think... It points to creation, to the creator. God has revealed, is revealing himself, his eternal power and his divine nature. They are clearly seen. God has revealed himself because that's what love does. But then verse 21, we have this descent into depravity. A decision is made and it leads to things getting worse and worse. Although they knew God, they neither glorified him as God nor gave thanks to him. That's That's the beginning of the trouble that we're in. That's the story of Adam and Eve in the Garden of Eden. That they get to this point where they think we no longer need to glorify God. We no longer need to give thanks to God. Actually, we would be be better without him. And it's the beginning of disaster because we are created for a love relationship with God. We are created to be in union With this immortal God, we're created to reflect his glory. That's when we are most fully human, is when we're reflecting the one who created us. And as soon as you take your gaze off of the creator, things um, descend into depravity and decay. And that's the beginning. They neither glorified God nor gave thanks to him. What did that lead to? Well, it led to their thinking becoming futile and their foolish hearts becoming darkened. When you take your eyes off your creator, your eyes turn somewhere where they, they turn inward. Your thinking becomes, you remember that parable that Jesus told, told about the foolish farmer who he gets in a huge crop and he thinks, I know what I'll do. I'll build bigger barns and I'll store it all up and then I can just rest and take life easy. Uh, and then he dies. And God says, you fool. Who's going to get what you created for yourself? Our thinking becomes futile and selfish and our foolish hearts are darkened. You don't have to look very... I realise that in the... kind of in the the bubble that I live my life and the people that I generally associate with, the depravity of the world is a bit... you know, it's kind of a bit... it's not immediately within my orbit... You don't have to look very far at all to see the consequences of the darkness of people's hearts and the depravity of what is going on in our world all the time and the things that people are doing. Because when you take your gaze from Recator, that's what you descend into. Although they claimed to be wise, they became fools. 
And verse 23 is, is the kind of the, the, the sucker punch. Exchanged the glory of the immortal God for images made to look like mortal man and birds and animals and reptiles. That's what we've done as human beings. That's where we've got to. Imagine making that exchange. The glory of the immortal God. Well, I've got that. That's, that's what I could have. Uh, but I'm going I'm to exchange that and I'm going to worship a bird made out of wood. I mean, it's madness, isn't it? You think, why would you ever... But that's the deceptiveness. Because we may think, oh, I don't do that. Because Paul is writing in a context in Rome where the place is full of temples and full of different gods that people are worshipping. And it's a transactional relationship with all of these so-called gods because uh, you need to appease them and buy their favour by offering a sacrifice. And that's what's going on in Rome. That's what Paul has in his mind. And we may think, well, you know, Bolney isn't full of temples where people are worshipping idols. Uh, Well, yes, it is. Uh, Because we may not worship um, idols made out of wood and stone. But if you're not worshipping the living God, you're worshipping something else. And it may not be an image, but it will be... You've got to replace... We're created for worship. We've got to worship something. So if we've removed God, then we'll replace God with something else. It will be an ambition. It will be a material thing. It will be something that leads to addiction. There's, there's a God-shaped hole in our lives that has to be filled with something. And if it's not filled with the living God, well, we'll fill it with, with material things. We'll fill it with addiction. Uh, there's, there's a longing in our hearts that has to be filled. And we'll fill it with something. And... Paul says what we have done as human beings is we've exchanged the glory of the immortal God for, for images, for idols. That cannot deliver. The problem with idols is they only ever want more. They can never be satisfied. The immortal God gives and gives and gives and keeps on giving and gives generously. But that's the descent. Paul says this is where we have, this is where we've got to. They neither glorified him nor gave thanks to him. That was the start. That led to their thinking becoming futile, their foolish hearts becoming darkened. And that led to them exchanging the glory of the immortal God for images. And, and it's, it's, it's so easy for us to do that. Even those of us that follow the Lord Jesus so often our hearts get distracted. So our, often our hearts latch onto something that we starts to come into focus and something that we start to give glory to. We always need to be checking ourselves and not being distracted, not being deceived into worshipping something that, that cannot satisfy the longing of our hearts. And then Paul goes on to... Um, Basically, say, what is the consequences of all of this? And he uses this phrase three times. Verse 24, God gave them over in the sinful desires of their hearts to sexual impurity. Verse 26, God gave them over to shameful lusts. Verse 28, God gave them over to a depraved mind to do what ought not to be done. Basically, what... If we don't want to live in relationship with God, then he'll give us what we ask for. He'll give us what we ask for. Remember the story of um, the parable of the, uh, uh, the father and his two sons in Luke 15. 
And uh, the younger son says to his father, Father, give me my share of the estate. And what does the father do in the parable? Well, he gives the son what he's asked for. And even though he knows what the consequence will be. So when the father gives the younger son the estate, half of the estate, he knows what's going to happen. So I, I remember reading this a while ago and thinking, well, why, if the father really loved his son and knew what was going to happen if he let him go, why didn't he make him stay? Because the father knows that if he lets the son leave, it's not going to end well. So if the father loves his son, why doesn't he make him stay? Well, it's because he wants a relationship of love with his son. So what will happen if the father refuses to let the son go? The son doesn't want to be there anyway. The son is resentful. The son is frustrated. The son wants to live his own life. If the father says, no, you can't leave, you've got to stay, that relationship is going to deteriorate. This younger son is going to become even more embittered and even more resentful. So because the father loves him, he lets him go in the hope that one day he may choose to return. And that's what happens in the parable. Eventually, the younger son makes a complete mess of everything, but then he comes to his senses. And uh, we said we didn't want to live with God. And God says, well, I'll, I'll, you can have what you ask for. And we live in the world that we do. And, and sometimes, people, you know, often people say, well, well how, can there be a God, how can there be a God when we live in a world that is such a mess and so full of suffering? Well, we live in the world we do because we ask for it and God gave it to us. And we are enjoying the fruits of our own request. It's because God loves us that we live in the world that we do with all of its suffering and all of its pain. It's because God loved us that he let us go. He said, if this is what you want, uh, you can have it. But in his love, he comes after us. And that's the, that's the good news. And um, as, as an example, Paul uses the area of sexuality. And this is, not the, this is not the sermon to really kind of unpack all of this, other than to say, for Paul, his understanding of the way in which God has created the world is that there are male and female. And in God's creation, uh, one man and one woman come together and become one flesh. And from that lifelong union, children are born. And that's what Paul, that's Paul's understanding of God's creation. So uh, uh, in uh, uh, Genesis 2, 24, for this reason, a man will leave his father and mother, be united to his wife, and they will become one flesh. As far as Paul is concerned, that's God's created ordinance. And as an example, he says, well, if you go down this path of neither glorifying God nor giving thanks to him and become futile in your thinking and become foolish, one of the places you will end up, and there's a whole list of other things that he goes on to, but one of the things you will end up to is is in terms of sexual relationships, everything will fall apart and become chaotic and become sinful. So in Paul's eyes, heterosexual sex outside of marriage is a sin. Heterosexual sex outside of marriage is a sin because it's not God's good creation. 
It's not what God has created us to be. Any sexual relationship outside of marriage is sinful. That's the reality. There are all sorts of other ways in which culture decays and falls apart. Paul just uses this as as a first example. But he goes on, you know, that list, they become filled with Every kind of wickedness, evil, greed and depravity, full of envy, murder, strife, deceit and malice, gossip, slanderers, God-haters, insolent, arrogant and boastful. They invent ways of doing evil. They disobey their parents. They're senseless, faithless, heartless, ruthless. That's where we get to when we turn our backs on God. And that's, that's unrighteousness. And that's why God's wrath is being Revealed because God doesn't want any of that in his creation. It spoils and it ruins. And um, we have to be clear on what God has revealed to us. So you can imagine, um, you know, we were... You know, last um, Sunday we were introducing this, just this sort of context in which the letter was first read with, um, you know, a bunch of people much like us gathered around in a room with Phoebe reading the letter. And, uh, and you can imagine the, um, the Jewish Christians are starting to feel a little bit smug uh, because, because they're, you know, they've got, you know, Phoebe's read the first, well, it's not the first chapter, didn't have to, but she's kind of read this far. And the Jewish Christians are, are feeling a bit smug because they're thinking, well, these Gentiles are getting a real hammering. Because, you know, this is what you're like, you know, you Gentile Christians, you know, we're, you know, we are God's chosen race. We are, you know, we're the Jews. And, um, you know, they're feeling a little bit smug because, well, we've obeyed the law. You know, we've, we've got the law. We've done lots of good things. And um, basically, chapter two, which we just don't have time to unpack. In chapter two, basically, um, Paul bursts the bubble of those resting in their own righteousness and thinking that they can... They can, they, can, um, they can do it by obedience to the law. They can do it through good works. Every religious system, as I so often say, every religious system works on the basis that you do something to get a reward. That's what religion does. You do something, you work hard enough, you believe the right stuff, and eventually you'll get the reward. That's not the gospel. And in chapter two, um, uh, Paul goes on to address those who might be feeling a little bit smug and says, you have no excuse, you who pass judgment on someone else. For at whatever point you judge the other, you are condemning yourself. And he, he basically just unpacks the fact that obeying laws can't save you. Because you can't obey them perfectly. Um, you know, uh, James says in his letter, if you've broken even one part of the law, you've broken everything. And we've all broken one part, so we've all broken everything. So he just says, there's nothing that you can put your trust in that will save you other than the Lord Jesus. And that's where he gets to in chapter 3, verse 23. So it comes to this conclusion uh, where he says, um, you know, there's no difference. There's no difference between us, whether you're a Jew or a Gentile, there's no difference. We've all fallen short of the glory of God. We've all fallen short of the glory of God. We're all in the same boat. It's the great level, level playing field. Now we're all as unrighteous as each other. We've all fallen short of the glory of God. The good news, verse 24, is we are justified freely by his grace through the redemption that came 
by Jesus Christ. So Paul wants us to understand uh, the goodness of God, that God created the world as an expression of his love. It was good. It was perfect. The way in which God created the world was beautiful and perfect. And we shouldn't be embarrassed about proclaiming that and the way that God has created us to live as men and women who may have a relationship of marriage. It's God's best. It is glorious. God is good. But when we turn our back on him, uh, we ruin it. It all becomes subject to decay. And in his love, God gives us what we ask for. He says, if that's how you want to live without me, then go ahead. But this is where we end up. And it is, it's, it's desperate. And it's creation ruined. But God in his love has good news. Uh, there's nothing, as we said last week, there's, in terms of salvation and eternal life, there's nothing that we bring to the party. We come with empty hands. When we gather around this table in a few moments' time, we come with empty hands. But God comes to us with full hands, with his son, Jesus Christ, offered on the cross. So the valley of sin is very deep and it is very serious. And we'll never understand how good the good news is until we first understood how bad the bad news is. The depravity of our wickedness without him. But as we ended last week, so let's end this morning. In the gospel, a righteousness from God is revealed. A righteousness that is by faith from first to last. The righteous will live by faith. And if we put our trust in the Lord Jesus Christ, then that righteousness is ours. And all of this bad news is sorted out. It's all dealt with on the cross. It's all done. But if you haven't come to the cross and you haven't accepted Jesus' sacrifice and you haven't seen your own sinfulness, well, then the wrath of God will you know, the wrath of God will fall. And it will either fall on you or it will fall on the Lord Jesus. And that's, that's the gospel, that's the good news. Let's just take a moment to, just to pause for a moment and then we're going to, uh, we're going to sing again before we gather around the table and are reminded of God's goodness.